Once again, Texas Romans 14, 1 through 12, found on page 976 of the Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith, faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own minds. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returns to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. All right, thank you, Kirk. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, would you change us from the inside out? Would you conform us to the likeness of Christ? Father, would, uh, in view of your mercy, Father, this morning, would you, by your spirit, enable us to draw near and to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? holy and pleasing to you. Father, would we no longer conform to the pattern of this world which is so passing, which is so fake, which is so counterfeit, and would we be transformed by the renewing of our minds? Father, please transform us. May our minds be renewed so that we might be able to discern the beauty, the goodness, the perfection of your will. Uh, we ask it in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I, I am always, um, always surprised, and this morning I have to say I, I'm really blown away by how relevant God's Word is uh, for us. Uh, it's amazing that a text written uh, 20 centuries ago could be so relevant, uh, so applicable today. Um, <clears throat> The church, uh, perhaps in a way that it hasn't been for a long time, at least the church in America, is overwhelmingly divided. In fact, I can talk to you about fellow uh, pastor friends who will speak of the deep polarization division within their churches. Uh, a, a division that keeps them up at night, a division that has for some actually lost, um, lost their jobs. 
It's a division that is reflected in our culture today, and it can be, uh, you know, fairly accurately, but there's some caricature, they're fairly accurately described as follows. Perspective number one would say that Christians might, might be a perspective held by Christians in, in the suburban church in America. For example, maybe South County, maybe West County. It would go something like this. We Christians today are in a bloody battle. We're fighting for Christ. We're fighting for our neighbors, for our schools, our churches. We're fighting for our nation. Our sons and daughters, our grandchildren. We're fighting for them to come back to God. Christians of this perspective look at their cities and then at the news and say, you know, there's so much talk about police brutality against people of color. But where's the pushback against the injured or murdered police? And what about the issues that are left undiscussed on the news? What about the legalizing of what's called puberty blockers for adolescents? What about double mastectomies for teenage girls? What about all this transgender talk? And what about the, and what about, um, the soaring crime? Shouldn't we be defending the police instead of defunding the police? We're tired says this perspective of being condemned. Being condemned for being concerned about matters like abortion, gender issues, critical race theory, religious freedom, school choice, law and order. These are the things that matter. And they feel defeated, discouraged, feel made fun of and belittled. And again, I know that side may be a caricature, may not be quite accurate. You may say, well, that's kind of me, but not really me. And I mean no disrespect. I mean no, uh, no I, I, I try to present a perspective as, as, as hopefully, and in fact, I got most of these lines from persons who themselves are describing how they feel, describing what they see. These are not my words. In fact, they're taken from a three-part series um, in um, Christian, and I was, no, it was in World Magazine. A three-part a three series that was talking about division within the church. These are taken, again, direct quotes from various persons. Perspective two may come from a church, uh, maybe, maybe suburban, maybe urban. Perhaps a church in North County, a majority black area where there's overgrown grass, liquor stores, and fast food chains. Many of the thousands of buildings and lots sit vacant medium household income is about $29,000, $30,000. Those who had the means left the inner city areas where they were in, in these neighborhoods. The many who couldn't leave entered into some sort of a spiral of unemployment, drug use, mental health problems, out-of-wedlock births, and, of course, the all-pervasive violence. Who has time to think about critical race theory when there's a shootout at the, at the barber shop next door and church members are helping to clean up the bloody mess. One pastor said, all this conversation about critical race theory, wokeness, picking sides, it just makes, my, makes me sick to my stomach. One of the most polarizing issues in the church is that of race, race and racism. One perspective sees racism, racism as an individual prejudice, hostility, 
a discrimination against someone based on their skin color, based on their race. The other says racism can manifest itself in a society's institutions, in its practices, in the cultural norms with evidence in, with, with, with that manifest themselves or give evidence in the persistent, in the persistent disparities and inequalities between the various minorities and races. One side says that labeling all whites as, inherent, is in, as inherently racist is unfair and even racist itself. The other side bristles and says, listen, the opportunities that you have, they're just not there for us. They're not there for many minorities. People who say, this, this, this other side goes on to say, the second side goes on to say, people who say that systemic racism doesn't exist, they think that way simply because they've never experienced the pains that many minorities have wrestled with. And for both sides, at the center of disagreement is whom? My former president, Donald Trump. Now listen, as, as baffling, as bewildering as these issues are, as divisive as they are, I want to ask you, are they new? Are they brand new? As intense or as acute as they are, are they all that original? Are they all that unprecedented? Consider this, listen to this. Think about this in historical context. Within the church, just of the last... 50 years. Okay, we go back a lot further, and it would be very instructive to do so. We, in the, within the church, we've had wars over things like singing. <laughs> right? You ever heard of the, the so-called worship wars? We've had wars over schooling, public, Christian, homeschooling. We've had wars over spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, exorcisms. We've had wars over strong drink, as in alcohol, drink or not to drink. We've had wars over spouses separating, divorce, who can get divorced, when, how, etc. We've had our wars over spiritual leadership, spiritual leadership within marriage, spiritual leadership within ministry. We've even argued over the six days of creation, right? There have been, throughout the last, these last years, you can see within the Protestant circles, Protestant evangelicalism, all these issues that can divide churches. So are divisive issues new? I don't think so. But if not, listen, they may feel more acute, more important, and more extreme today than ever. And I think that there's some real truth to that. In fact, many of you will know the, the New York pastor, Presbyterian minister, Tim Keller, in a very recent interviewer, he was asked, he was asked this, he said, the, the, the interviewer said, a lot of pastors are struggling, particularly after the various shifts during the pandemic. People are leaving churches over pandemic restrictions, the election, racial injustice, political differences, etc. Many pastors are leaving ministry. Have you ever dealt with something like this during your ministry? And listen to Keller's answer. He'd say, I'd say that the culture is definitely more polarized than it ever has been. And I've never seen the kind of conflicts in churches in the past that we see today. And again, he's talking about his own, about 35, 40 years of ministry, okay? So this is not like ever or something like that. It's not ever in America. It's ever in his time, in his, in his, his, his particular uh, pastoral career. <clears throat> 
I've never seen the kinds of conflicts in churches in the past that we see today. And Verti continues, In virtually every church, there is a smaller or a larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. Let me say that again. In virtually every church, there's a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized by the, to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. People are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view. And the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument, but through outrage. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they are being formed by the church. Let me say that again. People, that is Christians, are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse, discourse far more than they are being formed by the church. No, he concludes, no, I haven't faced anything like this in the past. So there's both continuity and discontinuity. So what in the world are we to do? We're to go to the Word, right? So this morning, in fact, and this morning and next, uh, next week, we're going to have a two-part series here that address what to do when Jesus' servants squabble. So if you've, got the, if you've got the text in front of you, Romans 14, let's walk through this together. All right, it is, it is ancient and old that, that, God, that, that God's people, that God's servants, the Lord's servants, squabble. And we see this in our text uh, to this morning. We see it in verses 2 and verses 5. Look in verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Diet. The early church argued over diet. Okay? Verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. What did the early church argue about, at least the Roman church? Days, days of the week, dates, diets and dates. And what's your response to that? Maybe some of you were like, really? That is so dumb, right? And there's something really instructive about that. Now, from 2,000 years later, we're all going, really? It was that important? And what were they saying? What would they say? Yes, it was. <laughs> right? You may, someday you might you know, encounter a, like a first century Christian in the new heavens and the new earth. You'd be like sitting there at your ED and having tea together, I don't know, doing whatever you're going to do. And you'd be like, so, the diet thing was really that important to you. Right? right? I mean, there's a sense of, for this distance, what seems so important. Okay? Now, no, hold on. Let's push back against that. Because actually behind, behind the diet, behind the dates, there was a lot going on. See, these diet, the, both the dieting and the, date, the, 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 the days of the week reflected Jewish customs that were ancient. Behind that diet, behind those dates, was a calendar, a way of living life that called God's people to be separate there were customs that called for making a contrast between the world 
and the church. You see that? And so if you just get rid of these customs, you get rid of just the diet, you get rid of, of the days of the week, these various Jewish calendar uh, uh, events and holy days, what well, just symbolizes a sense of compromise, right? You're compromised. You don't care about being different from the world. And so behind what seem, may seem trivial to us, what, what, what may seem you know, nonsensical or just silly, there's actually more at stake. 2,000 years from now, they may look back at the church and go, masks? For real? Vaccinations? Come on. And yet behind, those, behind masks, behind vaccinations, there's, there's more going on, isn't there? Right? I mean, reflect deeper interests, deeper issues, deeper concerns. So on the one level, we look at these issues, these, 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 uh, these uh, matters over which the Christians were squabbling, and we may go, really? On the other hand, we go, yeah, really? Especially in first century Rome. It's amazing how much we know about first century Rome and the Jews who were living there in Paul's day. In fact, if you were a just typical Joe Schmo Roman, you would have known about Jews, and you would have known they would have been distinguished by what? They don't eat pork. Yeah, there are certain things they just don't eat. In fact, Jews are ridiculed for that. Several distinguished uh, philosoph Jewish philosophers were, were at times would be interacting with Romans and Roman elite, and they'd be like, so what's behind the whole pork thing? And the Jews were like, uh, they didn't know. There was no, like, there was no like, diet. Or there was just, they had no idea. It was a silly thing to the Roman world. Why don't you do that? And you can imagine that some Christians going, listen, in the name of, of the mission for Jesus, let's just get rid of this whole pork thing. I mean, it's just dumb. I mean, what did Jesus say in Mark 7? Right? There's all this sense of, the, and Paul himself will actually say, later on, he'll actually say what his, what his views are. He'll actually lay it out there, especially with diet. He's like, listen, all food's clean. It's just not a big, this is what, I know that. But it's not that simple. Okay. So there's holiness, there's separation, there's distinctiveness, but there's also aspects of mission. In fact, unlike the diet, the Roman world looked at pork and said, pork's awesome. I mean, who wouldn't want a hot dog, right? On the other hand, actually, this is very interesting. When it came to the days of the week, especially the Sabbath, you know what a lot of Romans did? They're good. You know what? One day out of seven off, I kind of like that. And they actually embraced it, especially the lower classes. There were actually lower class Gentiles who actually kind of got into this whole Sabbath thing because it's kind of nice to take one day off a week. Right? It makes sense. And so maybe in the name of mission, you keep the Sabbath. Hey, let's not, let's not take that away. We want to care about the Gentiles. We want to bring them in. So what are you doing getting rid of the Sabbath? And so there's all kinds of issues going on underneath what seems at first to be so simple, so, so just trivial. Diets and dates. And I think that's important. So often we can look at issues, maybe that we don't care that much about, that we seem trivial, that seem dumb. Why are they arguing about that for? And behind it are actually deeper issues. Okay? So in the midst of these squabbles, so these are really squabbles are real. Right? We may say, really? I mean, the answer is, yeah, really, at least in some ways. But what's important is that these squabbles are reconsidered around, this is what Paul's going to do, he's going to recons reconsider them around one Lord. So let's read this together. In the midst of these squabbles, like diets and dates, Paul calls us first to seek out our dissenting servants. 
Seek out those servants who dissent from us. That's the very, very first thing he says. Verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak. That word accept, NIV, wonderful translation, awesome translation, okay? I mean, it's, that's why we have an NIV, all right? Except, in my mind, it's a little weak to what the Greek is actually saying. A better word would be welcome. Embrace. If you've got, the, if you've got your pew Bible open, turn to the left. Okay, turn to the left to, you, um, to the, the Psalms, just real quick. Go to the Psalms. Go to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, that's on page 475 of your pew Bible. Psalm 27, verse 10. You don't have to turn there, but you can just, I want you to list. Paul, this is David writing, and he says this. Though my mother and father, I'm sorry, though my father and mother forsake me. Again, this is page 475, uh, Psalm 27, verse 10. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. It's the same word. Receive me. Accept one another, whose faith, the one whose faith is weak. My mom and dad have, said, have, have tossed me out. The Lord will receive me. He'll embrace me. He'll go out and look for me. In the midst of squabbling, we are to seek our fellow servants, the ones who dissent or disagree with us. We're to pursue them, okay? Turn to, go back to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 28. To Acts chapter 28. Again, it's turning to the right. Acts 28, verse 2. It's on page uh, 964. Paul has just been through this momentous... Uh, uh, he's been at sea uh, this, in this large ship trying to make his way to Rome. And there has been... It's been a nightmare. It's been, there's been all kinds of storms at sea. They finally arrive on the island of Malta. And we read in verse 2, the islanders, think about this, these guys are shipwrecked. Verse 2, the islanders showed us unusual kindness. Again, page 964, 28, verse 2. The islanders showed us an uh, uh, unusual kindness. They built a fire and what? Welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Okay? So do you see? So that word welcome there, a sense of embrace. Come on in from the cold. Come, please. I want you to be here. How can I help you? How can I care for you? In the midst of squabbling, the servants are called first and foremost, not to figure it out, not to, come, not to, not to understand, not to hammer this out. They're called to welcome. They're called to seek out their fellow servants. Then turn back to Romans in Romans chapter 14, look, then look at next, look in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 7. Chapter 15, verse 7. It says, again, this is page 977, accept one another, it's the same word, accept one another how? Just as Christ accepted you. Okay? So in the midst of these squabbles, we are called to proactively seek out those servants who dissent, who disagree with us. Okay? And this stands in the place where we're going to seek them out, and we're instead of doing what? Well, Paul mentions two things in verses 2 and 3. I'm sorry, in verse, I'm sorry, just verse 3. In verse 3 of chapter 14, he says, he says, you seek them out, verse 1, instead of snubbing or spurning them. Again, look at verse 3a. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. Got that? You can't look down on them. You can't despise. You can't go, you know what? They just don't get it. 
All food's clean. You know, it's just food, for goodness sake. Why are they freaking out about meat or blah, 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 blah? And we just, there's this passive contempt. They, they don't get it. They've lost the plot. Okay? So Paul says, they seek them out instead of snubbing them or spurning them or sentencing them. Look at the, second, the next part of, chapter, of verse 3. He begins, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge or condemn or sentence the one who does. Why? God has welcomed him. God has accepted him. So Paul says, in the midst of squabbles, servants are to seek out their fellow dissenting servants. The second thing that Paul says that they're to do in the midst of squabbling is, is to see them as fellow slaves of the same Lord. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? See, in the ancient world, there was the master who was the judge. The master got to decide if a servant was faithful. He didn't look at other slaves or servants and go, hey, what do you think about you know, Joe's slave over here? It was, the, it was the, the master and the master alone who decided if the servant was faithful. Verse 4, who are you? Who do you think you are? to judge someone else's servant. To their own master, servants stand or fall. And he says, listen to this. And he says, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So when we're in the midst of squabbling, how we define the other person, we're to see them first and foremost as servants of the Lord. They're not, oh, he's a Republican, he's a Democrat, or he's whatever, whatever we have, we do frame them, you label them like the rest of the world does. No, they are servants of the Lord. And the implication is, because they're servants of the same master, stop judging them. Stop judging. Now listen, how, how did they become, how did they and how did you become slaves of the same Lord? Let's jump ahead real quick to verse 9. I love this. is one of my favorite verses in Romans. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. How did, how did Jesus come to be the Lord of all of his servants? He died for them. He spilled his precious blood so that they, so that you, so that you and I might be his servants. So in the midst of squabbles, we're to seek out the servants who disagree with us. We're to see them as fellow slaves of the same Lord that came through his sacrifice. Third, we're to study the matter ourselves. Look at verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Now listen, this is epidemic in our culture. It's epidemic in the church. Now we, have, we read an article from Fox News or CNN, and we think we're experts. We do. We, or we, see, we, we see something on, we, we're watching something, or we're listening to something, wherever it may be, somehow some, we come across something, and suddenly we're experts. And Paul says here, listen, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. You've got to actually come to a place where you have studied this matter, where you've considered it, where you've consulted, you've read the various sides. You've actually read this thing called a book. Okay? 
Does that make sense? They're called books. And you can order them on Amazon. Or you can go to the library. Okay? I'm sorry to be, I'm not going to be condescending. I'm just saying people will just spout all manner of things about all kinds of issues that they know almost nothing about. I have read 55 to, 755 to 65 books on race and racism. From scholars from all different perspectives, countless journal articles, blah, blah, blah. These are persons who are, you know, at least arguably are subject matter expert, experts. I think I know a fairly good amount about racism in America. I have my perspective, etc. I know almost nothing about immigration. You can even say, hey, what do you think about all that's going on on the border right now between America and Mexico? I'd be like, I don't know. I just don't know. And that's okay. You can say, I don't know. What do you think about, you know, this issue? What do you think about Ukraine, Russia? I, you know, I just, honestly, I haven't, I'm sorry, I haven't taken the time. I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't, you know, I've invested myself in that. You, have to, oh, you know, Sally over here, Joe over here, they, I know that they've, they've looked at it. Maybe go ask them, talk to them about it. Saying, I don't know, it's just fine. But Paul is saying what you can't do is spout on about it and you know, do all kinds, of things, all kinds of things on social media. You can't, after church, just go around talking about some issue that you just are passionate about and you haven't studied. In the midst of squabbles, we're to seek out, pursue, welcome, embrace... Not snub them, not sentence them. And listen, let me say this too. Not merely stomach them. Okay? What does the world say we're to do if people disagree with us? We're to, what's the T word? Tolerate them. Now, isn't that a, what a complimentary thing? Hey, hey, you know, Ron, I'm going to tolerate you. Isn't that, you feel the love, me tolerating you? No, you don't, you don't stomach them. Well, <laughs> you know, force it down like, like, what, vegetables or squash or something like that, or kale, right? If you like kale, Jesus loves you, all right? Okay? <laughs> now, listen, I'm just as important. It's not just stomaching. It's proactively seeking them out, affirming them, welcoming them. I've heard that you know, Terry over here, she thinks differently about this issue. And I'm going to make her know that I love her, embrace her. Sorry, Terry, I'm picking on you. You know what I mean, right? I'm, I'm going I'm to welcome her. I'm going to accept her. If anyone belongs in this place, Terry does. I'm going to make sure she knows about it. This, this isn't just politics, guys. It's about everything. It could be something like, you know, maybe Carlos over here loves hymns. He just loves Ferris, Lord Jesus. When it comes to praise songs, he's like, ah, don't really like it. And Jeff over here loves praise songs. He thinks praise songs are it. I mean, he's like, the, the spirit shows up when praise songs start. You know, the hymn stuff, it's all outdated, it's old school, it's wooden, it's whatever. What should happen between these two? You've got a, a certain Sunday where it's mostly all hymns. Carlos should come up to me and say what? Why weren't there more praise songs? I know that my brother Jeff over here loves praise songs, and for him to be edified, he needs praise songs. What's wrong with you, Pastor? I would accept that kind of criticism. I really would. I would love that. And on the Sunday where it's just all praise songs, Jeff is like, what did you, Bruce, you blew it. Don't you know that Carlos worships God through hymns? Do you see that? There's just seeking out, there's just promoting. And we're going to talk about the next more next week, this idea of edifying. We're going to do what's most edifying. So in, in squabbles, among the servants, the, you, we seek out our fellow slaves. We see them as slaves of the same Lord. We study the master our, we study the matter ourselves. And again, it's okay. These are disputable matters. It means what? You just don't need to have a have a view necessarily. You don't. 
I mean, you see this actually in, in uh, Presbytery, in, in my context, when a, when a young, uh, you know, a young, uh, you know, seminarian or ordinary come before the entire Presbytery, and then they have, we, we quiz them for two, three, you know, two hours or so, you know, on all, all these theological issues, etc. And they haven't had time to figure all this stuff out on their own. So what they do, they just embrace the tradition. They embrace the, the, the confession. And they, they, don't, they haven't thought it through themselves, but they're just sort of saying, listen, I think I'm Presbyterian, I think I'm Reformed, and here's, here are the kind of views I hold to. And here's why, because our tradition says so. They haven't studied the matter themselves, and, and that's okay. That's just expected. You've got to start somewhere. And so to say, you know what, it's actually quite powerful to say, you know what, I haven't studied the issue. I'm not really sure. Or listen, I've read one article. It was on CNN, and this is what they said. I don't know. You tell me. Okay? That is conversation creating versus conversation crushing. It's welcoming, right, versus sending others away in silence. So it's seeking, it's seeking out, it's seeing them as fellow slaves, it's studying the matter, and fourth, it's serving him in your stance. Whatever stance you come to, whatever view you have about diets and dates, whatever view you have about this or that disputable matter, we serve him in your stance. Got that? In your stance on X political issue, you're here to serve not Joe Biden, not Donald Trump. You're not here to serve Tucker Carlson or Anderson Cooper or whomever, okay? You're here to serve him. We see that in verses 6 through 8. I love this. this, this. Whoever regards one day as special does so what? To the Lord in service to their master. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains from meat does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for, them, for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live as Christians, if we live, we live for the Lord. Everything is surrendered to his lordship. Jesus, what do you want from me? Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. And so you ask this question, here's my view on this issue. And how do I surrender that? How do I hold it in a way that is pleasing to my Lord Jesus? So the fourth thing is to serve him in our stance that we take. And why do we do that? Fifth, for each of us will stand alone before the only judge. Look in verses 10 through 12. You then, he reviews, why do you judge your brother or sister? And notice how he switches uh, sociological language. He turns from, what, what do you call him? He said, we were fellow servants. And now he calls us fellow siblings, brothers and sisters. We're equal servants and with one Lord, and we are siblings, loved, beloved children of the same Father. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. Verse 12, so then each one of us We'll give an account of ourselves to God. You know, this is very liberating. It's convicting, but it's liberating. It's convicting in the sense that, wow, I am going to answer for myself. But it's liberating in the sense that, guess what? I don't have to judge anyone else. Do you know why? Someone's got that covered. They're going to do it. They will stand before the Lord. They will answer for the decisions, the, 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 the perspectives the views that they take. I don't have to do that. I just don't. I can worry about other things. 
Paul is saying, listen, stand before the judge by yourself, on your own. We will all do that. Don't worry about others. Don't, as we used to say in the military, don't worry above your pay grade. Okay? Now let me just, no, that's what Paul's saying here. Let me just make a few qualifications here. And we'll try to, we'll try to land the plane, all right? You can say, okay, I got it. I, Bruce, I got what Paul's saying, but what qualifies as a disputable matter? How do we know what's at stake, right? How do we know what we should, what we should die for? How do we know what we should divide over? How do we know what we should discuss? And frankly, how do we know what we should just dismiss? That's just dumb. We're not talking about that. Right? How do we know what we can think of, think of as concentric circles? The things that we die for. The things that we're going to divide over. Well, listen, I love you and you're, you're a Christian, but we're, there's some really substantive differences. That's where you have different denominations and things like that, or Catholic, Protestant. Die for, divide over, discuss. Hey, let's sit down and talk about that. I, I, hmm, I'm not really sure. What do you think? And then simply outright dismiss. Paul actually talks about that in places. He said, listen, don't talk about this. It's just, there's nothing edifying about it. How do you know what's what? Think of the analogy of squabbles in a marriage or a relationship. Right? Ever been, ever been times in a relationship with a loved one that you go, what were we arguing about the other day? We couldn't even remember. It was just so inconsequential. And we look back and we think, why did I make such a big deal out of that? Why couldn't I just let it go? So we there's squabbles in a relationship on the one hand, and we think that was unnecessary. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's often not squabbles, but silence in a relationship. And we think, you know, that was a pressing issue, and I said nothing. How do we know what's disputable? How do we know what to defend, to stand for? How do we avoid both squabbles, making a big deal, making a mountain out of a molehill, and then how do we avoid silence? You know, you know, just failing to, to have the courage to stand up when things really matter. How do we keep from being too strict or too soft, from being too pushy, or to being too much of a pushover? Well, here's the key question that we have to ask. First, two questions. Does Scripture provide a hierarchy? Does it provide a prioritization? And in fact, it does. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of the gospel as the things that matter most. Those, those matters that are of first importance. In fact, that's true of doctrine, but it's also true of life. In Matthew 23, Paul, Jesus himself will talk about how there are weightier matters to the law. He tells the Pharisees, you have, you've, 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 you've tithed all your cumin, your mint, and all these sort of things. And he says, what, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. The scripture itself provides a sense of prioritization both in doctrine and in life. And listen to this, our priorities, listen, this is so important, I think it's convicting for me. The priorities that we have in doctrine and life are a key sign of our maturity. It's just so important. As leaders, what am, as a leader, what am I preaching on? What am I teaching about? What are my priorities? This is so much about, about my maturity. As laypersons, what am I talking about after church? What am I talking about at small group? What are my priorities? It'll say so much about my maturity. And so here's the question to ask. One of the priorities, yes, too, this is the main question in answering this. How do we understand what's disputable and what's not? Is the issue addressed clearly 
and commonly in the Word of God and among the people of God. Let me say that again. I know how important is this issue, issue X. I can ask the question, I can answer that by saying, is this issue addressed clearly and commonly? That is, is it addressed in a way that is obvious and often, both in the Word of God and among the people of God? And by the Word of God, of course, I mean the Scripture, but by the people of God, I'm referring to the last 2,000 years of history when God's people have addressed this issue. I'm probably not the first person to think about this issue. That is to say, the people of God in every era, in every area, in every period, in every place, we can look at the creeds, the confessions, the catechisms, and we can say, has this this issue been discussed? So let's go back and circle back to the issue of justice. That was where I started, talking about how Christians today are so divided on political matters, especially around the area of justice. In America, the church is, there, there's so much confusion over what justice, what is justice, isn't there? Who's justice, we might ask? And so how easily can we be confident about justice issues in America? And I think it's really tough in some ways. Now, as we, we see these matters as, as just so straightforward, as just so obvious, I don't, think we, I don't think we're actually considering the matter. That the issues of justice that we face in America today are complex. And so what do we do? Well, there are two answers. I know I'm a little long here, but just give me a little, me a little bit longer here. There are two answers to this. How do we think about justice? Is it a, how important of an issue is it? Well, we get guidance from two different areas. First, from Romans. Romans is actually all about justice. The Greek word for justice is usually translated righteousness. It appears 34 times. Its meaning can, be, can differ, but it usually means the act of making things right. Isn't that beautiful? What is justice? The act of making things right. And we see it in key places in Romans. For example, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul talks about how he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, that aspect of God making things right, it is revealed in the gospel. In Romans 6, Paul will talk talk about how once we have been changed by Christ, we are to offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness. We are to be these instruments of making things right in the world. In fact, later on in our chapter, in verse 14, Paul will say, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, if I remember that right. So there's a sense of righteousness. Listen to this. Righteousness and justice in Romans is central. And that's true to the rest of the scriptures. We could go through the Old Testament, New Testament, and see how righteousness, justice is so central. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. The point being here, gang, is that justice is a first-order concern in Scripture. If we don't think justice is important, we've lost the plot. You think, oh, Bruce is a liberal. He cares all about justice, social justice. I knew it. I've got him pegged now. I'm not done yet. Paul goes on to say something else in Romans that I said two weeks ago. How many verses does Paul vote to devote to political power? Seven. Thank you, Ron. Seven. How many verses are there in Romans? 430-ish. That's 1.6% of Romans. 
a book devoted to speaking of God's writing the world. 1.6% are devoted to political power. And in Roman political discourse of Paul's day, it was all about how the government was going to bring about righteousness, justice. It was all about how government was going to bring about salvation. The emperor was going to save us and rescue us. And you don't find that in Romans 13, 1-7. You don't find anything about political power being this agent of God's purposes in history to bring about justice. So, is the Bible concerned about justice? Absolutely. Does the Bible believe that that justice that we are to long for to hunger and thirst for. He has shown the old man what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly? Right? It's a big deal to be about the business of devoting your life to making the world right. The passivity, the consumerism, the individualism, of the American church is wicked. How complicit we are in a narcissistic, social media, selfie life is diabolically opposed to the righteousness of God. Do you, Christian, do you hunger, do you thirst for the world to be made right? That sounds kind of liberal, doesn't it? But then do you see the government, do you look to political power and say, you know, we've got to get all these issues right. We've got to the right policies. Everything's at stake about who's in, the, who's in the Oval Office. It all matters. It's such a big deal. And we get so just lost and consumed in the 24-hour news cycle about everything's at stake. And Paul's saying, what are you talking about? Have you read Scripture? When is the last time a political authority did anything good for God? Okay? Does it make sense? So it's, it's all, it's all about justice. But the pursuit of that justice does not come about through political power. Let me just close with this. Every single, almost every single Sunday, what do we do? We recite Jesus' summary of the law. Whose plight can I know most confidently? Can I really know what's going on over in Ukraine? I know what's going on you know, in the cities of our nation. I don't know, maybe, in some ways. Whose plight can I know for sure? What does the second greatest commandment call me to? To love my neighbor. You can know the plight of your neighbor. You can know the issues of justice most confidently. I may not know much about race or races. I may not know about immigration, but I can know my neighbor. I can actually get to know them. I can pray for them. I can learn about them. So we look at the second greatest commandment. I think it's so instructive. Listen, there are so, way too many Christians know far more about Ukraine than they do their own neighborhood. And it's not easy. I'm not saying, oh, it's just so easy. No, it's not easy. And that's the whole point, to begin with prayer and defy the powers of globalization, the powers of individualization that make it so difficult to love our neighbor. Okay, let me just close with this. Listen, the world is watching they are watching the church and wondering if they will join us in division. Can the church be a witness of being one? 
can we make the world say, wow, here are people from all these different walks of life, different issues, different issues on political matters, and they are one. And this is, what we want, this is the most important thing I want you to see again, that these disputes, these differences that we have, they are not obstacles to endure. They are opportunities to exploit before a watching world. What would it be if, how amazing would it be you're at work and you strike up a conversation in the coffee room and you're like, yeah, you know, I had a friend of mine from church over. They're, they're Democrat, I'm whatever. I, you know, I, they, they differ on these sort of issues and we love each other. We just care about each other. And, you, and the world begins to see that these issues that are dividing it really aren't that important. What did Jesus say in John 17? He prays, I pray also for those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What is the world seeing, gang, at Good Shepherd? Squabbling or solidarity? They seeing the seeking out of our fellow servants, seeing them as one Lord, studying the issues, and realizing I and I alone will stand before the Lord one day. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, "Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing." Brothers and sisters, after church today, or in any Sunday, or in small group, when you get together. Are your words reckless? Are they negligent? Just saying whatever comes to mind, do they rush to the hot topic issues of the day? Or do they begin with, how are you? Let me tell you how I'm doing. I'm hurting, scared, struggling. Do they begin with a word about Jesus, or a word about our God, or a word about the government? Are our words, again, the word reckless here isn't just deliberate, it's negligent. It's not thinking. I'm not being deliberate. I'm not being intentional. Are my words piercing like a sword? Or are they the tongue of the wise that brings healing? Are my words restoring? Or are they reckless? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.